Hello everyone, welcome back to Atomic Hobo. We have just two days to go until publication of my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War, published on the 6th of April, available in hardback, ebook or audiobook. And today I'm glad to share part of that audiobook with you. Attack Warning Red is read by me and published by Penguin Audio. And you can pre-order the full audiobook, which will of course be available for full download on publication day, 6th of April, from all trusted audiobook retailers. The section we're listening to here is from the BBC chapter, which is the final chapter in the book. And we look at the war game. I hope you enjoy it. The programme will, of course, be horrifying. Nuclear war at the BBC. The 1967 Oscar ceremony was a feast of classic Hollywood glamour. The set was styled like a sugary musical extravaganza. The men wore white tie and the ladies had gowns in hot pink, bronze and buttery yellow. Awards were presented by film idols like Omar Sharif Olivia de Havilland, James Stewart and Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers danced onto the stage to announce the award for Best Screenplay. America was in turmoil with the escalation of the war in Vietnam and the fight for civil rights making the news headlines but for one night TV viewers were transported back to America's golden age. Yet any such pretense was rudely interrupted when the actor Richard Harris announced the winner for Best Documentary Feature, The War Game. The Oscar ceremony might have fastened the door against the foul and unfriendly night, but the war game kicked it open and brought nuclear war onto the stage like a dog dragging a carcass. The acceptance speech was polite and brief. It was as though no one wanted to dwell too much on the topic of the film. The war game was a hideous portrayal of a nuclear attack on Britain, directed by Peter Watkins, a young documentary filmmaker at the BBC who had been championed by the head of documentaries, Hugh Weldon. Watkins had come to his attention in the early 1960s with a brutal reconstruction of the Hungarian uprising of 1956, The Forgotten Faces. When the writer Milton Shulman viewed it at Granada Studios, he assumed it was a documentary. The violence, the agony, the despair, the rough camera work, the crude lighting, the texture of the celluloid, the chaotic shots of fighting, tussling men had that quality of immediacy and involvement reminiscent of the work of cameramen covering the front line during the Second World War at places like Stalingrad and Arnhem. Amazed, he asked the young director how he had managed to smuggle the footage out of Budapest. Watkins replied that he had filmed it in Canterbury. When he joined the BBC in 1963, Watkins decided to turn his skill for realistic reconstruction to the effects of nuclear war. This was a spectacularly ambitious project for any new boy in the office, but two things worked in his favour. 
The first was the changing nature of the BBC. In the early 1960s, under the leadership of Director General Hugh Green, it had begun shedding its old image as the well-meaning but fussy anti, the guardian of the nation's morals and provider of enlightenment. It was showcasing bolder writers and directors, such as Ken Loach and Dennis Potter in the Wednesday play slot, which produced the groundbreaking drama about homelessness, Cathy Come Home. The bold satire, that was the week that was, mocked the political establishment and came as a shock to what was still a deferential society. The second factor in Watkins' favour was the support of Hugh Weldon. Yet, to start with, Weldon gently steered his young recruit away from his controversial idea of a nuclear war film, encouraging him to explore other projects. Watkins thought about historical dramas on Nelson, Napoleon, Joan of Arc and Cromwell. He suggested more controversial topics such as the force feeding of the imprisoned suffragettes before the First World War or the recent Sharpville massacre in South Africa. Eventually, the young director fixed on the Battle of Culloden, the last pitched battle on British soil at which the Duke of Cumberland's troops had fought the Highland clans. Weldon was not entirely at ease with this project. Knowing his protégé's commitment to realism, it was certainly going to be a violent film. But he recognised that, having batted away Watkins' original nuclear war idea, he had to consent to one of his projects or risk losing this fine new talent. In August 1964, Watkins set off for Culloden, near Inverness with a tiny budget, a cannon, some tartan, a few bugles and drums, plus a cast of 140 ordinary people. To evoke and retain the feel of grubby reality, he did not want eloquently enunciating actors. I wanted to break through the conventional use of professional actors in historical melodramas, he recalled, with the comfortable avoidance of reality that these provide. Instead, he used local newspaper adverts and amateur dramatics groups to recruit non-professional actors who were keen to wrap themselves in muddy tartan and pick up a musket. As Weldon remembered, greengrocers, lawyers, teachers from Inverness, youngsters, he marched them in their clobber through heather, gorse and bog, 23 miles, and at the end of it, they looked exhausted, and he filmed them. And it was quite brilliant. Culloden felt as if a TV crew had joined the battlefield, dodging the fire, skipping over the dead, ducking behind walls, interviewing the combatants, who were filthy, exhausted, dying. Men spoke directly to the camera, almost resentful of the crew for distracting them from battle. It was a shocking production that stripped away all Highland romance from the scene. We see no springy purple heather or misty mountains, only men suffering and dying, falling into the grass and writhing and rolling in their agony. There is no glory, no heroism on either side. War is a hideous thing. Aired on BBC One on 15th December 1964, 
Culloden was a spectacular success. An artistic triumph, wrote the Scotsman. Unforgettable, said the Guardian. Compulsively viewable, confirmed the Times. With such a boost to his reputation, the young director thought he should go back into Hugh Weldon's office. He still wanted to make his nuclear war film, he announced, with the provisional title, After the Bomb. This time, it was hard to say no, but still impossible to say yes. So Weldon said, maybe, and gave the young director permission to begin research. The major fact of this century? The BBC had been very coy about nuclear weapons. If the broadcaster was beginning to stretch itself in daring new directions with satire and social commentary, there was no similar bravery in confronting the nuclear threat. In fact, Winston Churchill had prohibited any broadcast on the topic. When, in 1954, he learned that the BBC were considering a programme on the nuclear bomb, he ordered the Postmaster General to tell them that unless scripts of any future programmes on the nuclear threat were submitted to the government in advance and met its approval, they would be banned by ministerial order. Churchill's Defence Secretary, Harold Macmillan, spoke of the government's concern to retain control of the manner in which the effects of nuclear weapons were made known to the public. If these effects were presented too abruptly or in too alarming a fashion, there was a real danger people would adopt a defeatist attitude. The BBC was not to inform and educate, as its mission statement put it, when it came to nuclear war. This shameful ban on the topic persisted well into the 1960s, but was arguably weakened by the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962. As people around the world sat watching the creeping approach of nuclear holocaust on their TV sets, no one was left in any doubt about the dangers they would face. Weldon was therefore wary of proceeding with a project that aimed to show the reality of nuclear war. Culloden had been stark and violent, so wouldn't a film about nuclear attack, taking the young director's same realistic approach, be utterly horrifying? Still, as he confided to colleagues, in order to avoid losing the mercurial young Watkins, I must certainly let him get this film out of his system. He explained in a memo, The programme will of course be horrifying. It is being worked on with the greatest possible care. We intend to retain counsel on certain security aspects. The build-up, both of the attack and the reaction of the country, is being done well within the bounds of possibility, according to the best authorities and the best calculations. That is to say, it is likely to be the more appallingly credible because it is not exaggerated. But he had given consent to Watkins to start work on the film because should we not all be aware of what is, after all, in some sense, the major fact of this century? Yet every seemingly bold step was tempered with caution, with the firm 
understanding that the film cannot be put out until it is seen and we must decide later precisely who should see it. When Hugh Green learned of the troubling project, he summoned Weldon to his office. They agreed to move slowly, one careful step at a time. On seeing the first draft, Green tried to halt its progress, but Weldon, continuing to champion his fierce young director, arguing on behalf of the film, now entitled The War Game, and securing permission for shooting to begin. Everything was inching forward slowly. But if the BBC were being painfully cautious, the government were alarmed. They had been alerted to the nuclear project by none other than the young director himself. As part of his exhaustive research, Watkins had sent a lengthy questionnaire to the Home Office, which was in charge of civil defence, asking blunt questions about hospital capacity after a nuclear attack, about stockpiling and about who would be in charge of the state. I made formal approaches, realising that I was rather putting my head in the lion's mouth, he recalled. But I thought, what the hell, I've got to try it all ways round. So I went to the Home Office and I said, I would please like to know, and I gave them a long, long list of questions about civil defence preparation in Britain. There was an icy silence for several weeks. Then one day, Watkins was summoned and told by a Home Office official, we're afraid you're not going to get this information and we believe it's best for you not to push the point. The Home Office had in fact sent a letter to the BBC following Watkins' inquiries, saying they considered the broadcaster and the government to be partners in the realm of civil defence and therefore hoped that any programme which, in the government view, could be against the national interest or prejudicial to security should be prepared with the utmost care and responsibility and be controlled at the highest level within the corporation. They not only refused to cooperate, but forbade all other government departments in receipt of the questionnaire from doing so. Sorry, we've been told not to touch you, Watkins was told. The only body that ignored the order was the fire service, which, Watkins recalled, was the weak link in the official Happiness Bureau. Many of its members had witnessed the incendiary raids during the Blitz and they knew all about the firestorms of Dresden and Hamburg. Despite the forbidding response from the government, Watkins went down to Kent to start filming. As with Culloden, he shunned professional actors and recruited his cast from local amateur dramatic groups. He began by amassing a few hundred people in a meeting room and explaining his purpose in making the film, to bring the truth about nuclear attack and civil defence to the millions of ordinary people sitting at home in front of their TVs. After his speech, he tried to meet each actor individually, making notes on who would be a good policeman or a suitable looter and who might do well as a badly injured and quivering old lady. The filming took place in Dover, Gravesend and Tunbridge in April 1965. The war game begins with the swirling approach of nuclear war due to international tensions over Vietnam 
that then spread to Berlin, the eternal flashpoint of the Cold War. As news rolls in from the continent, Britain makes its feeble preparations. Women and children are evacuated from the cities to be billeted upon reluctant householders. Are they coloured? one housewife asks anxiously. Sirens are tested, their horrible wail rolling through the streets as people stand around, confused. What is to be done? Where are they to go? How can they afford the sandbags and building materials to secure their houses? To add to the sense of realism, Watkins included Vox Pop-style interviews on the streets, pushing a camera and microphone into the faces of his actors and asking them whether they thought war would come, whether Britain should retaliate, and what they knew of nuclear fallout. The responses seemed utterly natural, because they were. Watkins later said that this was the only part of the film that was not a reconstruction. His cast were asked to give free and honest answers. One day, the unorthodox filming brought the police onto the set. There was a lot of trouble, one crew member recalled. We were hanging people on the street, and Peter hadn't got permission to do this. When the attack on Britain begins, we witness painful domestic scenes. A family starts to panic on hearing the siren and fumble with the furniture, trying to assemble some kind of protection in the four minutes that remain. When the bomb drops, the lampshade swings wildly from the ceiling, crockery smashed, and the little boy is blinded in the garden. Kent has been targeted as it hosts Manston Airfield which was used by the US Air Force during the Cold War. But the missile has overshot the target and hit populated areas. The father, a big bumbling man in a crumpled suit, charges across the lawn, scoops up his sightless toddler and runs back into the house, where the terrified family crouch under a kitchen table, cradling the children's heads. They huddle there in silence, staring into the camera waiting for the shockwave to arrive. The scene shudders as the blast hits and the emotionless narrator likens it to an enormous door being slammed shut in the depths of hell. Closer to Ground Zero, the attack has ignited many fires which have merged to form a firestorm. Watkins' close collaboration with the fire service is evident here as this is one of the film's most powerful and merciless scenes. In the midst of the conflagration, firemen struggling to contain the immense wall of flame are fighting for breath, as the firestorm is sucking oxygen from the air, sweeping it into the heart of the fire in hurricane-force winds and using it to feed the inferno. As oxygen vanishes, it is replaced with carbon monoxide. In Watkins' cinematic trademark, we see stark close-ups of the firemen's faces, looking blackened and exhausted. Before long, they collapse one by one, dying of heat exhaustion and suffocation. Yet the film did not dwell too long on the attack itself. It was the aftermath that chiefly concerned the director. After the bomb, Kent is... Still Kent, this has been a limited nuclear attack. But even though houses still stand, 
and country lanes keep their leafy hedgerows, the psychological effects on the survivors are horrendous. Watkins had early on realised that there was plenty of information available about blast waves, heat flashes and radiation, a lot of scientific stuff, but not much about the social impact of the bomb. He wanted to know what it would do to people, to their moods and their manner and their ability to cope. How would they stay clean, care for children, relate to friends and strangers and remain civilised? Where would they find hope? The war game shows us the terrifying disintegration of law and order and a furious contempt for authority. Gentle people are compelled to loot. They seize guns and join a violent raid on a food depot. Others give up and sink into terrible apathy. Some are reduced by trauma to communicating only through grunts and violent spasms. Children have lost all hope for the future. I don't want to be nothing, says a little boy when asked what he wants to do when he grows up. Executions are being carried out on the streets by the authorities. Policemen conduct mercy killings of the injured, for whom there can be no medical care or basic pain relief. In one scene, we see the trusted figure of a 1960s British bobby pressing a gun to the head of a civilian. When the film shows a crate of guns being delivered to the police, the local coppers root through the box as though they've received their Christmas presents, eagerly choosing their weapons and tucking them snugly into their belts. It was the sight of the mercy killings that most upset Hugh Weldon. I was sure if that was going to be done, they'd have got doctors, nurses, or even nuns, anything other than the police. He recalled asking the director to cut the scene and Watkins went through the roof. In this derelict world, viewers were shown the opposite of the spirited and victorious country that had, just 20 years before, withstood the Blitz and helped defeat fascism. This was Britain seen through a cracked looking glass where everything has been warped and inverted. It presented people destroyed by war and a place where values, manners and respect no longer mattered. It showed, over the course of a few short days, the total disintegration of an entire world. It also revealed that British civil defence was utterly futile against the nuclear bomb. What Prime Minister Clement Attlee had acknowledged in private to a few men of privilege and power in 1945, Peter Watkins now intended to tell the entire nation on BBC One. Little wonder the authorities feared his film. The Final Cut On 2nd September 1965, the film was shown to the two most powerful men at the BBC, Director General Sir Hugh Green and the Chairman of the Board of Governors, Lord Norman Brooke. The support of Hugh Weldon had brought it this far, but now its fate lay with these two men. Green was known as forward-thinking, but Norman Brooke was the man the young director would have to satisfy if the war game was to be safely delivered to BBC One. Before joining the BBC in 1964, he had been the head of the civil service 
but having worked on many of the government's civil defence policies, he arguably knew more about the hideous reality of nuclear war than Watkins himself. Both Green and Norman Brooke admitted that they were impressed by the film, but shied away from giving full consent to broadcasting it. They argued that it was so powerful and carried such consequences that the responsibility for showing it was too great for the BBC to bear alone. The concern was that the film could be seen as questioning, and indeed destabilising, the whole notion of nuclear deterrence. And so Norman Brooke suggested they take advice from the government. Watkins was appalled and threatened to resign. Weldon tried to appease him, explaining that the BBC's decision to consult further on this important and powerful documentary arises solely from its responsibility, which must override all other considerations, to act in the public interest. But Watkins knew that if the BBC was consulting the government, which had already frozen his inquiries and obstructed his research, then the war game was doomed. He submitted his resignation on 20th of September. Four days later, government officials filed into Theatre 2 of East Tower, a television centre, to view the war game. The distinguished guests included the Cabinet Secretary, the Head of the Home Office and representatives from the Ministry of Defence. Lord Normanbrook was present, but Green was away in Africa, meaning the BBC was wholly represented on this decisive day by an ex-Whitehall man. Years later, Sir Christopher Bland, chairman of the BBC from 1996 to 2001, declared himself horrified at this practice. A really bad idea. Why don't you show the government all our programmes and ask whether they like them? The government men's immediate reaction to the screening was not recorded, but Norman Brooke noted afterwards that it is clear that Whitehall will be relieved if we do not show it. The government were, of course, too wise to publicly demand that the war game be banned, which would have created an enormous scandal about censorship and the BBC's treasured independence. Instead, as is often the way, hints and careful understatement were deployed. The government made their feelings known and quietly left the public announcement, the explanation and the responsibility to the BBC. The corporation needed to find a convincing reason for its refusal to broadcast the war game, and so they reverted to good old-fashioned paternalism. They stopped trying to be progressive and liberal, and instead sought refuge in their reputation as the nation's ante. The official stance was that the film was too horrifying for the medium of broadcasting because of the indiscriminate nature of the audience. So they were subtly blaming the British public, who would be unable to tell fact from fiction, too ignorant to realise this was not a true documentary, and too lazy to put their kids to bed before the watershed. Viewers were not to be trusted and needed to be protected. Auntie knew best. The press release sounded like a hostage statement. This is the BBC's own decision. 
it has been taken after a good deal of thought and discussion, but not as a result of outside pressure of any kind. Questions were asked in Parliament about whether the government had tried to censor the broadcaster's output. An angry Peter Watkins wrote to Hugh Weldon, You have finally betrayed me. Hugh Green later explained his reasoning, falling back on the excuse that the viewing public were feeble. I could not face the responsibility of pushing on the air a programme which was so shocking that old people living alone, for instance, or people who were somewhat disordered, might be so upset by it that they could go out of their flat and throw themselves under a bus. Watkins claimed the BBC privately told him they would expect 20,000 suicides if the film was broadcast. And yet, despite the apparent risk of mass suicide, the corporation decided to show it to their staff before allowing it to be screened in selected cinemas. It seems that BBC employees and those who attended art house cinemas could be trusted with the truth of the war game, but not the masses at home watching with their tea and biscuits. For Watkins, this hypocritical elitism was spectacularly disgusting. The insulting idea that the public had to be shielded from the film persisted even into the early 1980s, when the then Director General, Sir Ian Trithowen, said, If the film was broadcast, however late at night, and with however many advance warnings, there would be not just the likelihood, but the certainty that some elderly people living alone would find themselves watching it without warning and so might some people of limited mental intelligence.